Hi there, this is Kate. And I'm Dominic. And we are your hosts of Shitting Bricks, the podcast. Every week we'll bring you an episode of What Makes People Shit Bricks. Is it a fear of death? Deep water? Running out of wine? Cannibalism? We take a warp look at these topics using examples from history that are the epitome of some scary shit. You can find us on all the regular podcast streaming services like Apple, Spotify and Google. For exclusive content including behind the scenes nuggets, links to weekly topics and maybe even merch in the future, head to Shitting Bricks Podcast on Instagram and YouTube. But for now, drop your dax, pop a squat and let's get into it. Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have entered the mind of someone that has a taste for the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside, warm up your mug, and enjoy your visit into the world that is the nightcap. Welcome, my friends, to the Nightcap, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. This month, in light of the Ukraine invasion by Russia, I want to remind everyone on the horrors of war. We are journeying deep into the pit of death, so deep, in fact, that you may need spelunking gear to properly crawl back out. I have covered some seriously diabolical creatures, but this humble storyteller is just getting warmed up. When dealing with blood and guts, there are many ways in which people have met their demise, and, while all of them are obviously gruesome and untimely, there are instances of premature death that could have been avoided altogether. Knives, guns, poison, and even a strong pair of premeditated hands hell-bent on causing expiration has nothing on what a country can do that is hell-bent on cleansing ethnicities or what are considered mistakes to the human race. When vile minds collaborate or carry out indescribable horrors, the mark they leave behind must be examined however dark and terrible they are. Gather round the fire, curious ones, and get comfortable for the ultimate five global genocides. The first leg of our journey takes us to Germany in 1939. Yes, we're discussing the Nazis again, but not in the way you think. This particular point during the Third Reich's reign is about the all but buried and forgotten T4 euthanasia program. Hitler had high aspirations to become the most reviled person to ever stain the earth, and he certainly achieved that with the Holocaust, but don't think he stopped there. We are very aware that his plan included gypsies, homosexuals, and other mongrels he saw as a burden to the white race. The thing is, 
he also saw another portion of the German population as a detriment regardless if they were white and German, the mentally challenged and physically disabled. Framed as a euthanasia program to kill the terminally ill, elderly, physically and mentally disabled, and even the emotionally distraught, the program started in 1939 and was officially discontinued in 1941, but that doesn't mean the killings stopped. They covertly continued to extinguish innocent human life until Germany's defeat in 1945. Dr. Karl Brandt and Chancery Chief Philip Bowyer were, quote, charged with the responsibility for expanding the authority of physicians so that patients considered incurable according to the best available human judgment of their state of health can be granted a mercy killing. To cause further controversy and maliciousness, Hitler backdated his order to September 1st, 1939, the day World War II began to give the appearance of a wartime measure. Within a few months of implementing the program, nearly all of Germany's psychiatric community was recruited to kill anyone that had a life not worth living. Some physicians that were involved with eugenics under the Third Reich enthusiastically took part in this and saw it as a way of cleansing to pave a clear path for the Aryan race's rise to supremacy. The issue was the program wasn't aimed at cleansing impure genes or necessarily infirmity. It was mainly economic. Since Germany was still struggling post-World War I, it could nil afford any, quote, useless eaters or burdensome lives. There needed to be unity, and with unity came a decree that if you were not able-bodied to work or contribute, you didn't matter. Directors of this program sent out surveys to every mental health facility to find out which patients fell under the umbrella of their guidelines for termination. Since a lot of patients were not examined properly or established a baseline, most physicians decided themselves who lived and who died. The methods by which these groups were dispatched varied. The first methods had been cruel, such as starvation and lethal ejection. Later, they graduated to simpler measures, like asphyxiation by poison gas and showers, which were, of course, later used to kill millions of Jews in concentration camps. Program administrators established gas chambers at six killing centers in Germany, in Austria, Hartheim, Sonnenstein, Gaffneck, Bernberg, Hadamar, and Brandenburg. The SS staff in charge of transports donned white coats to keep up the charade of a medical procedure. Program staff informed victims' families of the transfer to the killing centers. Visits, however, were not possible. The relatives then received condolence letters, falsified death certificates signed by physicians, and urns containing ashes. Some medical professionals protested and even the Catholic Church opposed it, along with the Jewish question. Count Clemens August von Galen, the Bishop of Munster, protested that it was the duty of Christians to preserve human life at all costs, even at the cost of their own lives. Even as adamant as most of the German medical community was about Hitler's solution, they still had to act like everything occurring was a scientific justification. Creating killers out of those who took a Hippocratic Oath doesn't happen overnight. When the Nazis came to power, the Bavarian Prime Minister decreed that psychopaths, the mentally retarded, and other inferior people be isolated and killed since it was already occurring at the newly established extermination camps. 
A year later, Reich commanders ordered institutions to start withholding food from patients as well as medical treatments to those deemed unworthy of life. The economic justification for eliminating these groups were further justified to be spent on newly married couples instead of on criminals and the mentally insane and Hitler, in a particularly horrendously disgusting statement, convinced many members of the German population that quote, wartime was the best time to eliminate the incurably ill. Because of the success Hitler had with his T4 program, it became the precursor for the Holocaust. Some of the physicians who became willing participants of cold-blooded murder of these groups later staffed the death camps. They had long since lost all their moral, professional, and ethical inhibitions. On August 24, 1941, almost two years after the T4 program was initiated, it appeared to cease. But this was obviously untrue, having gone underground, continuing by combining with the final solution disposals. It is estimated that over 70,000 people in these groups were murdered at these centers before the official start of the Holocaust and once the Nazi regime had fallen, the numbers are said to be three times that amount. Not everyone is born to this world as someone that can do what is considered normal in modern society, but to outright attempt to wipe the slate clean in hopes of achieving a utopia is not only pure, unadulterated evil, but it lacks any words I am capable of uttering to describe it. Another country would emerge around the same time as Nazi Germany that would be with the morality of humanity deciding who stays and who goes, Imperial Japan. For those not fully aware of the involvement Emperor Tojo had in World War II besides attacking Pearl Harbor, hold on to your seat because this gets real bad, real fast. Between 1937 and 1945, the Japanese military conducted lethal experimentation on Indo-Chinese and Russian populations. Lieutenant Ishishiro led what was called Unit 731 in carrying out these acts which comprised over 3,000 medical researchers. At the time, Japanese superiority was all but a pipe dream due to the 1925 Geneva Protocol putting so many bans on development, especially on germ warfare. When Japan acquired Manchuria, Ishii saw it was a perfect place to stage these deadly human experiments to circumvent the restrictions. On paper, these tests were conducted to establish breakthroughs in medical research and handle any medical emergencies their army would face. The reality of the situation, it seems, would be beyond imagination. It turns out patients were vivisected and injected with diseases such as syphilis, anthrax, and gonorrhea. Researchers even took liberties raping the female patients so they would produce fetuses to be experimented on and use some as targets for grenade practice. When some tests failed to produce anything viable, patients were burned alive for sport. Out of all these atrocities, the worst is the way the military carpet-bombed Chinese villagers with plague-carrying diseases to infect its inhabitants to see what the effects would yield and how quickly it spread. Most victims were either criminals or communist sympathizers referred to as marutas or logs. The numbers are said to be in the thousands, ranging from 3,000 to as much as 250,000, and researchers involved are said to have been under the assumption that everything done was routine. 
Despite the ferocity of these crimes, not one individual stood trial for these crimes due to the fact that the U.S. was currently engaged in the Cold War with Russia. In exchange for immunity, those involved agreed to turn over any intel they extracted during these experiments to the United States government and ended up paying over $2.3 million for classified documents regarding these medical trials. As a result of what they uncovered, the U.S. military would conduct their own program, developing their own chemical warfare program, much like the Third Reich did. As of 2018, recent documents have emerged naming over 3,000 victims of these war crimes, reigniting what Japan did over 80 years ago. The document lists members of the Kwantung Army's Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department, the unit's official name, and is dated the 1st of January, 1945. It includes the names, ranks, and contact details of more than 1,000 army medics, as well as dozens of doctors, surgeons, nurses, and engineers. Japan reluctantly acknowledged the unit's existence in the late 1990s, but has refused to discuss its activities. Instead, accounts of the unit's activities have been built around testimony from former members, photographs, and documentary evidence. In 2006, Toyo Ishii, a former nurse, said she had helped bury the remains of victims of Japan's biological warfare program at a site in Tokyo as U.S. forces moved into the Japanese capital at the end of the Second World War. Ishii said she and her colleagues had been ordered to bury numerous corpses, bones, and body parts following Japan's surrender in August 1945. Other accounts indicate that similar experiments took place in other parts of Asia. In 2006, Akira Makino, a former doctor, said he had been ordered to conduct experiments on condemned men while stationed on the island of Mindanao in the Philippines. The investigation is ongoing and plans to publish a document are underway. You see, no nation is without sin, although some others willfully engage in atrocities for the betterment of its own society. The cost, however, would be more than the human race could ever hope to repay. The United States has long bathed in its own blood financially, ethnically, and territorially, even when it was against its own citizens. The Civil War was perhaps the most perplexing of all conflicts in American history, and is still shunned and mocked by many historians today. That being said, to neglect the men who died, innocents who were caught in the crossfire, and slaves being yanked in the northern and southern direction would be a grave injustice and cannot be ignored. The South was seen as primitive and dangerously racist, but not all of them were that way. Some gave sanctuary to those that needed it. Then there were some like Henry Wirtz, the commander of Andersonville at Camp Sumter, that relished in seeing the North fall and slavery becoming a permanent way of life. Camp Sumter, later renamed to Andersonville, was the largest prison for the Confederate Army in Sumter County, which is in southwest Georgia from 1864 to 1865. Housing Union soldiers, it was known as the most inhumane wartime prison camp during the American Civil War for its notoriously terrible conditions and high death rate. In the summer of 1863, the U.S. federal authorities ended an agreement under which Union and Confederate captives were exchanged. The result increased number of Union prisoners of war confined in the capital city of Richmond, Virginia, 
constituted a danger to the Confederacy and put serious pressure on that city's food supply. In November 1863, Confederate authorities selected Andersonville, through which ran a stream, as a site for a stockade encompassing 16.5 acres. Prisoners began to arrive in February 1864 before the prison was completed. At its peak, it could comfortably accommodate around 10,000 POWs, but the Confederate Army did not complete the prison in a timely manner, and adequate supplies were not received, which resulted in overpopulation from the start, climbing from 12,000 to way above 32,000 POWs, creating mass sickness, famine, starvation from being understocked, and high suicide rates. The original site was 16.5 acres and was extended to 26 acres in June of 1864, but by then, it was too late. Each prisoner had to fend for themselves, with some using debris from any leftover construction they found and cloth for shelter from the rain. There was only six square feet of prison space per prisoner, which even solitary confinement occupants would consider deplorable. Since materials and rations were so sparse and the quality was nearly inedible or unusable, prisoners were forced to find alternate ways to get their daily nutrition and hydration, with some men drinking from the nearby polluted creek that was filled with parasites and fecal matter from diseased and dying men, which caused dysentery and diarrhea. To make matters worse, there were no trained medical staff on site, which led to more illness and death. Oh, but it gets worse. Since morale and hope was at an absolute rock bottom, some inmates resorted to turning on their own forming gangs, like the Anderson Raiders, who would kill those that had any type of possession on them. The ones looking to the guards for help would get none, as they would have little training or just didn't care, and would fire indiscriminately at any prisoner with or without cause. Records show that approximately 900 prisoners died at the camp each month, with a total of around 12,000 dying total during its operation. After the war, Captain Henry Wirtz was tried and convicted of war crimes by a military commission. Wirtz rejected an offer of parole in exchange for his incrimination of Confederate President Jefferson Davis, and he was hanged on November 10, 1865. He is the only person in the United States ever to have been executed for war crimes. The site of the camp has been preserved as Andersonville National Historic Site. The village, which is approximately one quarter mile from the camp, includes the railroad depot at which the prisoners arrived and the prison warden's office. Other attractions include a seven-acre farm dating from the mid-19th century. A grim footnote on an already diabolical grimoire that the United States has carved out for itself its limited but bloody history and one America would like to forget. Those that don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it, which is something I believe modern U.S. citizens should always keep in mind. When a country has a limited run, it is given time to either become better than other nations or follow the same vicious cycle their counterparts are in. Take Libya, for example. A nation that has only been independent since 1951 has had a majority of its rule under one tyrant named Muammar Gaddafi. It began with oil and ended in bloodshed, followed by his removal of power in 2011, but the tidbits in between is where the story gets dismal. Gaddafi ruled with an iron fist in his rise to power in 1969 that was so strong that no one opposed him until 2011. 
His army was fiercely loyal to him. He had a harem of personal wives that devoted everything they had to making him happy, even making them take brutal initiations into his personal female security details. Protests started in 2009 that led to little more than minor skirmishes between rebels and forces loyal to Gaddafi. That was until February 11, 2011, when forces fired upon civilians sparking a violent backlash that led to its citizens creating an interim government called the National Transitional Council aimed at overthrowing Gaddafi. The problem started when NATO forces started to join the fight and led to a triple triad of potential collateral damage and social atrocities that is still debated today. Libyan armed forces were accused of killing between 500 to 700 civilians even before the uprising. International Criminal Court Chief Prosecutor Luis Moreno Ocampo said that the shooting of protesters had been systematic, suggesting that forces attempted to dissolve the unrest in a violent manner, only serving to make it stronger. Ocampo further stated that war crimes were apparently committed as a matter of policy by Gaddafi personnel, with evidence of such by another group said to have witnessed 10 demonstrators being gunned down despite laying down their arms. Further claims are mostly unfounded, such as undisclosed crimes against humanity, kidnappings, disappearances, using heavy artillery and landmines on crowds, ill treatment, firing on medical teams, and mass rape of over 300 women, including teenage girls. It didn't just stop with those loyal to Gaddafi, however. Those against Gaddafi were also held accountable. Some soldiers were reportedly given no quarter and executed on the spot by their own superiors and hung on public display. Even after admitted for injuries, it was said that one soldier was dragged out of a hospital and hung by a local angry mob while another injured man was shot and returned to the emergency room. Rebels against Gaddafi went even further with lootings, beatings, acts of arson, and killing random women and children that were seen as sympathizers to the regime. The final piece of the conflict comes with much controversy as NATO joined the fight and had its own list of accusations. It was said that one particular airstrike killed 85 civilians in a village called Majur. Although there is no official evidence against this claim, some reporters covering this so-called event did visit a nearby hospital and questioned what happened to the 30 bodies that had arrived, but were met with disinformation or silence. NATO claims all operations in Libya were to neutralize key buildings and vehicles, but there are many unconfirmed reports that their involvement may have attributed the death of hundreds of civilians. While Gaddafi was overthrown and stability was eventually returned to the country, the cost was great and the wounds are still very fresh. The saying goes that you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, but that shouldn't suggest that one should create a huge catastrophe by smashing the entire crate. As is most atrocities outside of our scope of understanding, most of us turn a blind eye to a law of genocide and cold calculated slaughter if it doesn't immediately concern our vicinity. Take our next situation that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, but haven't been fully informed or struggled to digest from what the mainstream media has divulged over the years. For the past 30-odd years, the Congo has been the staging ground for greed, corruption, and one of the worst civil upheavals complete with child slavery, rape, cannibalism, and murder the likes which the globe has never seen. 
Towards the end of the 20th century, the Congo region erupted into a bloody conflict among its own people in a bit for control over gold, diamond, and copper mines. It is hard to pinpoint exactly when all this unrest started, and even harder to figure out all that occurred. So, here's a timeline of what I could find. Since 1959, there have been two dominant tribes in the Congo, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Since that time, the Tutsis controlled most of the country, even though the region was predominantly Hutu. In that same year, the Hutus overthrew Tutsi monarchy, and most fled to neighboring countries like Uganda. Peace had been shaky for decades until paramilitary factions were formed by Tutsis to reclaim their territory, such as the Rwandan Patriotic Front. In 1990, they invaded Rwanda, and fighting continued there until 1993, when they successfully overthrew the Hutu government, reaching a peace deal. This peace deal between the two tribes would be very short-lived, however, because on April 6, 1994, a plane carrying Hutu President Juvenal Habayamana was shot down, killing all aboard. This sparked outrage from the Hutus, as they blamed the Rwandan Patriotic Front thinking this was retaliation, which made no sense, since the Tutsis had won. Nevertheless, shortly after the President's death was announced, angry Hutu rebels rose up and started a well-organized campaign of Tutsi slaughter, their rallying cry being that of their leader's death at the hands of their enemies. Militia was formed quickly, and pamphlets, communiques, and other correspondence was handed out to these groups, who methodically started to round up government officials, killing them, then finding their families, and doing the same, sometimes in an even more brutal fashion, such as raping the women and female children first, before doing so, and giving the young boys an option. Join them in turning over others, or die. Many families turned on each other, for fear of losing their lives. Hate propaganda circulated throughout the country, and anyone found to be harboring Tutsis would be killed. It got so unbelievably brutal that there are some reports of priests and nuns dispatching Tutsis who were attempting to seek shelter from the murderous militia groups. Jesus, in this case, does not save. The systematic eradication lasted a grueling of 100 days, and by that time, over 800,000 Tutsis and Hutus were killed. It was only after the UN and Ugandan government intervened that it ended, but by then, each tribe had dissolved to neighboring countries such as Zaire and Burundi. Few people were held responsible, with the exception of high-ranking Hutu militia leaders numbering around 93. A few years later, more tragedy struck the country with the emergence of destruction and raids brought on by the army for the liberation of Rwanda. Until 1996, the Eastern Congolese Tutsis led an uprising to force the Rwandans out of the Congo, which sparked the First Congo War. In response, Rwandan and Ugandan armies backed Laurent Desiree Kabila invaded the Congo. Their combined effort was called the Alliance of Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Congo Zaire, or AFDL. By December, they controlled Eastern Congo, and in May 97, they marched into Kinshasa and overthrew Mobutu's government. The country was renamed the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Kabila took over as president in September of 1997. Back-to-back -back conflicts followed after installing new leadership. 
Despite the new government, the Eastern Congo continued to be an unstable war zone. Kabila turned on his former backers, the Rwanda and Uganda governments, and allowed Hutu armies to regroup in Eastern Congo. This resulted in a Rwandan-Ugandan joint invasion in 1999. Neighboring countries came to Kabila's rescue and temporarily halted the Rwandan and Ugandan troops. The five-year conflict pitted Congolese government forces, supported by Angola, Namibia, and in Zimbabwe, against rebels and soldiers backed by Uganda and Rwanda. In July 1999, the seven countries involved signed the Lusaka Peace Accord and 5,000 UN peacekeepers were sent to monitor the situation. In January 2001, President Kabila was assassinated by his bodyguard and his son, Joseph Kabila, took over. Joseph Kabila proved to be an adept negotiator and in 2002 completed successful peace deals that finally saw Rwanda and Uganda's withdrawal from the Congo. In December of 2002, Nabila negotiated a peace deal with internal rebel groups, promising them a power-sharing interim government. This deal became official when Kabila signed a transitional constitution in April of 2003. This conflict has been referred to as Africa's World War to give you an idea of how serious and devastating this was. It is estimated that over 2 million innocent civilians, soldiers, women, and children lost their lives in these power struggles. To make matters worse, there is still no real peace in these regions, and it has spawned monsters such as Joseph Kony, who has led his own Christian militant group comprised of Christian children's soldiers, which is still active today. Make no mistake, Africa is the cradle of civilization, but also the repository of all the world's misery and woe. When mass murder and rape becomes commonplace, it's time to stand up and realize something is rotten, and the solution is to either change fast or slowly watch it wither, leaving another disgusting blotch in the history books. And so, at last, we have reached the end of this human hellscape road. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Be sure to go on Spotify and rate this program and do the same on all other platforms such as Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. More platforms will become available soon. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.